You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health Podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. Hello, I'm Teresa McKee, your host for A Mindful Moment. Thank you for joining me as we explore ways to increase mindfulness in our day-to-day experiences. Mindfulness is presence, awareness. It's paying attention to what's happening within us and around us. Mindfulness increases our emotional, physical, and mental well-being. It can also enhance our focus and productivity, and there are many health benefits from practicing mindfulness and meditation, from lowering blood pressure to increased longevity. Perhaps most importantly in today's chaotic world, mindfulness strengthens our ability to be more compassionate to ourselves as well as others. Dr. Rachel Goldsmith-Turo is a psychotherapist and research scientist who has trained hundreds of individuals in the use of mindfulness, self-compassion, and cognitive behavioral skills. She is an adjunct faculty member at Seattle University and the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. She is also the author of Mindfulness Skills for Trauma and PTSD, Practices for Recovery and Resilience, and is a frequent speaker at national and international conferences. She's provided workshops, seminars, and conference presentations for diverse audiences that include mental health professionals, cancer researchers, Department of Defense personnel, veterans advocates, and mindfulness scholars. She has also trained military medical personnel to manage others' trauma response during deployment. I'm excited to talk with her today about her new book, The Self-Talk Workbook, Six Science-Backed Strategies to Dissolve Self-Criticism and transform the voice in your head, because we all have that little voice in our head that can throw us off track or prevent us from fully enjoying life. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you so much, Teresa. Thanks for having me. Oh, I am, I'm really happy about this. The book is really effective in helping readers understand not only how mindfulness supports us in changing how we talk to ourselves, but also in understanding how our brains work and the impact mindfulness can have on those processes. It also includes real-life examples and reflection questions to help anchor the practices themselves, which I find very helpful. But before we get into some of the practices, from a scientific perspective, why is self-talk so important when it comes to our mental health? Well, it's an interesting question to me because when I was training as a psychologist, I heard a lot about self-criticism as it relates to depression. When people are depressed, it's a common symptom of depression to feel bad about yourself, maybe even to be depressed about being depressed, to feel bad about having those feelings. And self-talk or self-criticism wasn't involved as much when I learned about other mental health challenges. But when I was looking into the research literature, when I was writing this book, I was really surprised to learn that the way that we treat ourselves, talk to ourselves, relate to ourselves 
plays a really big role in a whole range of mental health experiences, including anxiety, stress, addictions, self-harm, and eating disorders. So it actually plays a fairly large role in mental health, according to the evidence. Interesting. And, and there's certainly no shortage of anxiety and all of the other factors you've just listed these days. So That's true. I love the simplicity of the inhale my friend, exhale my friend practice, which I'll let you explain in just a second. But I also appreciated that you point out that focusing on the breath can make some people more anxious. So with an emphasis right now in the mindfulness community on neurodiversity, can you talk about how this practice can benefit everyone or anyone? It's an important question to ask, well, what mindfulness or self-talk practices are right for you or your patients or your colleagues or students, and really to understand that people have different preferences, different needs, different backgrounds. So even if you really like a specific skill or practice, somebody else might not have that same experience. And that's why I provided six because I wanted to focus on, okay, well, which skills are aligned with some of the research evidence and can I provide a range of skills? And I have heard from students and others that folks with anxiety, especially with panic, sometimes focusing on the breath just feels more stressful, especially if you're in the middle of a panic attack, it's super stressful. I can't breathe and now I'm even more focused on it. Whereas in that situation, distraction can often really help to stop thinking about that breath. But I did have one student say that in general, they didn't like breath-focused exercises. But because that exercise uh, that I call inhale, my friend, exhale, my friend, it's really short. It can be just one breath long. Uh, Because it's so short, um, that student wrote that it didn't seem to provoke the same distress that they felt um, when doing other kinds of breath-based self-talk or mindfulness exercises. So it's an interesting one to try out. It's, yeah, short, it's portable, and it's sort of an, an appetizer to other self-talk work. Yeah, I felt it right away. I use inhale love, exhale love. It does feel good. I, I do think it's important that people really understand none of this is one size fits all because we are all different. And so don't give up just because you try one thing and it makes you uncomfortable. There could be other practices like you have in the book that will work great. So thank you for sharing that. How does spotting our successes reduce self-criticism and why are simple tasks like getting dressed included as successes? Well, this exercise has been a really fun one for me to teach, especially with my students at Seattle University. So the idea is to list 10 actions that you've taken today to either benefit your own life or somebody else or the world. And the catch is that there's no item too small. So if you sent a text to your friend or you took a vitamin, it still counts. My students usually have a little bit of resistance at first. It can feel sort of silly to list things that you take for granted. Like, well, I had to take the garbage out. I had to eat breakfast. Um, You know, I had to send that email. But since we gloss over most of those successes, successful actions, we have a bias toward only ruminating about what we haven't done feeling like we haven't done enough. And really, I mean, I don't really know a day where I felt like I've done everything I ever possibly wanted to do this day. All of my goals are achieved. So it doesn't usually feel like that. 
People who do make to-do lists often say that crossing off an item feels really good. It feels really satisfying. So this is like a to-do list, but it's a done list. And it's interesting that students initially kind of struggle to um, maybe identify 10 things. You can get stuck at five or six, and then you have to dig a little bit deeper. And that's some real mental work to say, wait, there's maybe more that I just didn't really notice or I took for granted. So after a few weeks of practicing this skill, my students report that they look forward to it. It made them feel more motivated, more productive, and it changed how they were relating to themselves. Instead of criticizing themselves for how much they hadn't done, they were able to shift their mind into the zone of acknowledging more what they had done. And that's a really nice balance to hear about. Definitely. I got to tell you, you made me laugh. One of my biggest challenges when it comes to judgment and reframing, or as you describe it, reappraising, is noise. I live in a really noisy neighborhood, which directly impacts my work. I've got an airport nearby. I've got Mr. Big Muffler Man right outside my window. And so I'm constantly working on this. So when I read your story about the meditation retreat with the dishwasher noise next to your room, it resonated. I'm wondering if you can explain why reappraisal can be more effective than what I've been doing, which is focusing on non-judgment and acceptance. Reappraisal or seeing the same situation in a different way is a really neat tool to have in your collection. It seems that it's really effective to go into a situation already deciding on your mindset or kind of switching it soon. (laughs) It's harder to stop feelings when they've already gotten going. You're like stopping the train. But if you can kind of notice it at the station, you have a little few more options. So um, on one meditation retreat, the leaders were encouraging us to have a lot of mindfulness for everyday activities and to try not to judge them. So I very mindfully went out and I got my cup of tea and started to go on a walk and a bird pooped right in my cup. But because I had already set out with this intention to try to be non-judgmental and just observe experiences, I stayed in that zone and it didn't bother me that much. And I went to go get another cup of tea, but it was a pretty wild um, moment of really practicing non-judgment. And I had already set that intention that I'm going to try to react with noticing rather than judging. And I have to agree with you. You're right that you focused on how amazing it is that the bird had such great aim or something that it hit the cup. But yeah, I agree. Um, And I have been trying to use acceptance, you know, okay, it's just noisy. I have to, I mean, I can't control all of this noise, right? I have to accept it, but it is a challenge if you get stuck in that loop. And I, I hear myself starting to make that little growling noise, like, you know, really? And that's judgment, you know, and I catch myself and I keep going through the cycle. So I did appreciate that section of the book. I'm like, okay, I need to, I don't know what I'm, how I'm going to reappraise it yet, but I'm going to. Right. And it's all sort of playing around and experimentation. I don't know if it's possible to have zero judgment. I don't think that's what we're going for. Sometimes you do need judgment in certain situations, but living in that zone of always evaluating yourself and the world and everything that happens as good or bad or, you know, needs to change, that can be really exhausting. Yeah, I agree. I think it's totally exhausting. Why do you think meditation is an effective strategy for reducing self-criticism? Self-criticism is very common and it's a very powerful habit. It's sort of like the smoking of mental health. So once you get it started, it's really, really hard to change. It can sort of become the 
main way that people relate to themselves, evaluating, putting yourself down, thinking you're not good enough in these various ways. And we know that the network of the brain called the default mode network is engaged when you're not doing very much of anything. You're just sort of hanging out. You might notice your brain, your mind replaying its top 40, its greatest hits. And they might change a little bit, but you kind of know what they are, the things your brain kind of goes to when nothing much is happening. The problem is that that rumination is associated with depression. So meditation can change that habit of getting stuck in that default mode network. And the way that you do it is through doing this mental exercise, which is really sort of the key move in meditation. And a lot of my students, uh, and I too, when I started meditating, I really, really thought you had to keep your mind focused the entire time. And when you had a distraction, that was like failure, you know, and the, the more focused, the better, the less focused, the worse you are, the worse the meditation session is. What I didn't understand is that meditation actually cultivates the skill of shifting your attention. And that is just as important for mental health as focusing. So it's not just the focusing or staying focused. You actually need distractions because there's no other way to practice when your mind goes away, bringing it back as quickly and with as little judgment as possible. So you need distractions during meditation for the workout to work. So instead of thinking, oh, I'm so bad, I got so distracted during meditation, you could reframe that, reappraise that as, hey, I did 50 reps where I redirected my mind. And it's that valuable workout that then shows up later in the day or just in general, because the evidence demonstrates that it generalizes beyond meditation to your everyday life, that when you get into a ruminative train of thought, since you've been practicing those reps of redirecting your mind, it's going to be easier to get out of that rumination and think about what you want to think about instead of those habitual thought patterns. Yeah, it's funny. I have clients because I recommend to my clients that they all practice mindfulness and meditation. And they'll say something like, in five minutes, I was distracted a hundred times. Like they're very aggravated with themselves. And I always say something along those same lines, like, wow, you had an excellent session of, you caught it every time, you know, a hundred times you caught yourself that you reminded that's how you build your mindfulness skills. And so I think most people have that misperception that somehow you're not supposed to get distracted, which is pretty impossible these days, right? Um, right. Distractions are normal. Can you share some of your tips for those who judge themselves when they try to meditate? Well, I sympathize with how difficult it is, and it might really help to reframe the meditation as you're going to do a tough mental workout. It might not be easy or peaceful or relaxing, and that's okay. That doesn't mean it's not working. And that tough mental workout is going to include a lot of distraction and maybe mental experiences, thoughts, or feelings that you don't want, that you don't appreciate, maybe stuff you don't even like about yourself. And you're working those muscles, those mental muscles of shifting and not judging yourself. It's normal to be self-critical during meditation. And even though that is a challenge, you might feel yourself saying this was terrible. I'm terrible. Meditation is terrible. It didn't go well. It's actually that very habit that's your target. So when that happens, it's not a sign that you can't meditate or that meditation is bad. That's actually the gold, not the dirt in your pan. So 
That's what you want to focus on. Can I practice during the next distraction being a little bit kinder and gentle, more gentler? Um, Can I, I think, you know, no judgment, that might not happen, but less judgmental. Can I shift my attention back without getting so upset at myself, even though it's really hard? It might get worse before it gets better. And that's that's really discouraging because it's like, here I am. I want to stop criticizing myself all the time. So I heard meditation is good, but guess what? Every time I sit down to meditate, I get so mad at myself for getting distracted. So I think sometimes people might just need to get for, through that first week or two that, well, you have this really powerful habit. That's exactly what we're working on, this habit of self-judgment. And so we're just going to be able to change it through that mental repetition of every time the distraction happens, bringing your mind back with a little bit less judgment, a little bit more gentleness and friendliness. So let's practice that a thousand times. And then we can evaluate, did your self-criticism decrease a little bit? Did you get a little bit kinder towards yourself? Yeah. And I I think it's so important to focus on the kindness part of this because a lot of the, a lot of my clients, the, the first thing they say is I can't sit still. You know, and there are ways to meditate without sitting still, but it's almost like the judgment's already there before they've even sat down, right? And so instead, you know, if we look at it as I'm doing something that's really good for me, and if it's good for me, it's going to end up being good for other people. And so just a, like you said, a gentler approach instead of, I don't know, aiming for this perfect session or something that we do to ourselves. Those, the inner voices, I mean, I, I, I had a very powerful one. And it still does pop up. But I think if we start to recognize that, you know, we can accept that. And, and even if you hear the criticism, these exercises that you have in the book, that's the whole point is there to start helping you address it so that you don't be so hard on yourself. And I don't know why we're such harsh critics of ourselves, but most people are. So it's really tough. And um, Teresa, that's such an interesting example that you shared, just that idea that I can't sit still. It's very all or nothing. And I think most of us have that about so many activities. There's no wiggle room for improvement. And a lot of people actually view their self-criticism as this unchangeable fact, like their height or something like that. Like, oh, I've always been my my own worst critic. I've just always been that way. But actually, the evidence shows that self-criticism is influenced by our environments, by the way that we're treated by other people, by racism discrimination, homophobia, and by the way people around us treat themselves, we absorb that as well. So there are a lot of factors that contribute to this self-criticism habit. But the evidence is very clear that we can change it. Thank goodness. (laughs) I'm guessing some of our listeners have never heard of this before. So could you explain what behavioral activation is and how it benefits us? Right. So behavioral activation is a fancy term for doing things that are active, even when you don't really feel like it. It's very much a just do it kind of thing. And where it's surprising is that I often want to feel motivated before I do something. I want to like really feel like writing or going swimming or cleaning. I want to feel like it and get in that mindset. And actually, it turns out that doing the action often leads to the motivation. It seems so counterintuitive, but um, instead of waiting to feel motivated, you sort of leapfrog over that lack of motivation, go right to the thing. So for me, um, I, I wanted to start swimming more. I wrote it in my calendar. 
And I blocked off when I was going to swim at the pool when they have the open adult swim time. And that helped me so much. It just looks very real. It's already on my calendar. So if I don't do it, I'm like missing an appointment. And, you know, the other day, I I, I didn't really feel like going swimming. But I, I did it anyway, because it's an action that's aligned with my values and goals. And because I knew I feel fabulous after I swim, I feel amazing. And it really benefits my health and well-being. But I, I really didn't feel like it. So the idea is that you plan these actions to take and you try to, you know, gently disregard, okay, I don't really feel like it, as long as these are really actions aligned with your goals and you let the actions kind of lead you rather than, ah, there's just so many thoughts that could get in your way, right? I don't really feel like it. I don't know. I, um, so you plan it and you do it. And it turns out that that skill of behavioral activation is a really useful one for um, working through mental health difficulties. It's a fabulous intervention for depression. When people are depressed, you don't feel like doing anything, even taking a shower. It feels awful getting out of bed. So um, kind of forcing yourself to do it and then maybe some um, reinforcement, you know, good job, you got up. That's different from not getting up, you know, great, you're clean now. Whatever you can do, it that sort of um, enhances the benefits from behavioral activation. So uh, it's a really fun tool to have. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's also a great way to eliminate procrastination, right? Take that first step. Then all of a sudden you're motivated to do the thing you've been putting off for two months that makes us depressed. You know, makes us feel like it's heavy and dreadful. Right. Yeah. Just start it. Just get started and see what happens. Um, you you alluded to this earlier regarding sometimes people have very uncomfortable feelings when they start meditating, things they don't want to deal with. And you know, it's understandable that most people try to avoid difficult feelings or emotions because as a species, we just don't like discomfort. But how can we learn to allow or experience all of our feelings instead of trying to tamp them down or avoid them? It's a really hard question. And yeah, nobody likes difficult feelings. It's not fun to feel angry or jealous or frustrated or, you know, depressed. It's very difficult. Meditation is a very interesting stimulus because in sitting breath meditation, you're focused on this one task of paying attention to your breath. Other thoughts and feelings might come up, but the instruction is to return your focus to the breath. I think one thing that's neat about it is that all sorts of feelings come. Big feelings, little feelings, medium feelings, you know, your um but falls asleep, or like you you notice some tension in your neck. And it's a neat opportunity to give yourself some um, allowing sensibility, kind of making room for the feeling, allowing it to be there without judging it. And you might want to try that with some of the easier feelings first, kind of like, you know, picking up the five pound weights before you go to the 20 pound weights. So, you know, don't be alarmed if you're still kind of avoiding really hard feelings. Everybody does that. But if you can build your power in, okay, I'm really noticing this tension and kind of just noticing that my neck feels tense and tight, and let's just tune into that feeling for a minute and then go back to the breath. You're generating this capacity of allowing feelings or um, you had something that was just moderately difficult this morning. There was a, a traffic jam or, um, you know, just a memory of interacting with somebody who's not your favorite. <laughs> So it's not the worst thing ever, but if you can allow those medium moments to be there, 
that can build your confidence and your skill of handling some of the super painful moments that happen. Yeah, and I agree with that. And and even if you, you know, you sit down to do it, perhaps to this exercise, and you're too uncomfortable, you can stop. You know what I mean? You can say, okay, I'm gonna take a break and I'm gonna try again in an hour. Or so there's no, I think. Because one of the other things that comes up a lot, you know, in the feedback I get is that people feel pressured. So it goes back to that, I'm not doing it right thing. And instead it's like, no, this is hard to do, but you're but throughout the whole book. That's the point I'm sure of the workout name. It is like a workout. You know, if you went to the gym and you were lifting weights and you started hurting, you might pause or stop for a minute, take those you know, breaks in between the reps or whatever. And then you try again. And this really is, it's like a, a, work out for the mind. And so I think it's really important for people to understand the benefits of actually allowing all of those feelings to express themselves in some way is so much, so beneficial compared to trying to hold them in, right, for our mental and our physical health. So thank you for that. All right, I use a variety of techniques or practices to shift my internal chatter, because as I said, it's, it's, it's still there. It doesn't completely go away, but um, but it, it creeps in more than I'd like sometimes, especially when I'm under pressure. And I understand cognitively why, um, because, you know, we hit on all the sort of universal needs, like, am I just incompetent? You know, that little voice just starts that criticism. And so my question is, really speaking to that, can we really ever eliminate, like, all self-criticism, or is it going to come up? For most of us, I think that a lot of our mental habits are going to stick around to some extent, but not in exactly the same form. So I don't know if we'll have zero inner voice ever talking to us, but we could probably have it speak a little bit more gently and notice it with compassion too, so that you don't feel like you are that inner voice, but you're like, oh, that's interesting that I feel so much pressure about this or that I'm being harsh about that, you know, maybe I should try something else out on purpose and intentionally. Just like perfectionism isn't really helpful for us in general, uh, I I would caution people against becoming self-critical about self-criticism. <laughs> you don't want to be like, there I go again, beating myself up. I'm so horrible. I'll never get better. Instead, when you notice self-criticism, noticing it gently is sort of some kryptonite for it, right? Like, oh, isn't that interesting? There's that critic again. I wonder what's going on there. Hmm. Wonder how I could help myself through this day with a little bit more kindness. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that because I do think it's important. Well, you know, the whole thing about like being self-critical about being self-critical, I think for practitioners, we fall into that trap. You know what I mean? We start criticizing ourselves for not being more mindful or more aware or whatever. And it's important to remember that we're human and it's going to happen. <laughs> but I do think that if we can remember to be kinder to ourselves when it happens, it greatly subsides. So. Right. And it might get subtle. And sometimes the subtle ones are the hardest to work with. And it might take the shape of words or it might just be kind of like a kind of feeling. And I was uh, driving to the grocery store this moment and I just noticed a physical sensation. Um, of rushing in my chest, like a feeling like I had to rush. It's like, well, oh, that's kind of interesting. And that was kind of neat to play around with. Like, okay, I'm noticing the rushing, but really I'm just, I'm not going to speed. I'm just going to get to the store when I get there and it will take me how long it, it takes. So I don't really need to like feel a lot of stress about it. But 
That's kind of interesting that there's some residual um, like agitation there. Um, so there's a lot of opportunities for practice, I think, once you get started. Well, I think the book, and again, it's the self-talk workout, provides an excellent plan for reducing self-criticism. Uh, where can our listeners find out more about your work and the book? My website is rachelturo.com. It has um, links to the book, to related articles, to interviews. So there's even a submission form if you have any questions or would like to get in touch. I'd love to hear from any readers. Wonderful. Well, I really appreciate you joining us today and reminding us of the importance of self-compassion. Like I started out with, we all have that little inner critic. And if we can learn to accept that it's there, but we don't have to listen to it and use these exercises to start getting our minds to think in a more positive, self-loving way, I think we would all benefit. So thank you so much. Thanks for talking with me today, Teresa. Thanks for your work. Until next time, I encourage you to meditate daily and be mindful in all of your everyday activities. Simply bring your full awareness to the present moment to build your mindfulness skills, paying attention to every detail of what you're doing, from washing dishes to work tasks to taking a walk. Your mind will wander, and that's normal. Each time you notice it has wandered, that's mindfulness. Consider how wonderful the world could be if everyone was mindful. You can help make that happen. It all starts with a mindful moment. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to other great shows like the Daily Meditation Podcast, Everything Everywhere, and Movie Therapy. We deeply appreciate your support at patreon.com slash a mindful moment. Please be sure to subscribe to A Mindful Moment and follow us on Instagram at A Mindful Moment Podcast. Visit our website, amindfulmoment.com, to access podcasts, scripts, and book recommendations. A Mindful Moment is written and hosted by Teresa McKee and or Melissa Sims. The Spanish version is translated and hosted by Paola Tile. Intro music, Retreat by Jason Farnham. Outro music, Morning Stroll by Josh Kirsch, MediaWrite Productions. Thank you for tuning in. This podcast is produced by Work to Live Productions.